I would ask the kids to go ahead and head off to Children's Church. And as the kids are heading off, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Song of Solomon. We have begun uh, a series uh, in the book of Song of Solomon called The Art of Marriage. And uh, this morning we are in part two of the Song of Solomon. And so if you have your text, it's always good to bring that. Uh, If you don't, the text will be up on the screen. Song of Solomon, right in the middle uh, of your Bible. Uh, Song of Solomon is uh, a book uh, in uh, the section of your Bible called the Wisdom Literatures. Uh, The Wisdom Literature. And Wisdom Literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all of these books are meant to speak very practically into uh, all areas of our life. And so this morning, uh, we continue on. Uh, Last week, if you recall, the very first uh, very first sermon, the very first section of uh, the Song of Solomon was called The Art of Attraction. And so last week, uh, just to refresh you, we saw uh, Solomon and his, uh, his bride, his unnamed bride, uh, physically become attracted to one another. But we saw that that physical attraction was undergirded, if you will, was built upon the foundation of what I would call spiritual attraction. And so we saw the, the art of attraction, how two uh, godly uh, uh, men and uh, a man and a woman, how are they attracted to one another? We saw physical attraction, we saw spiritual attraction. And so if we were to continue on in the progression of any relationship, we go from a couple not having met and being attracted to one another to then uh, what I would call dating. And so this morning we're going to see part one, the art of dating. Now to be fair, in Bible times there really was not such a thing called dating. It's kind of an American Western institution. But I use that word because what we see here is two... We're going to see this week and next week, part one and part two of the art of dating. We're going to see Solomon and we're going to see his bride to be on what I would call dates. That is, they are out together. They're in public together. They're enjoying one another. They're growing in fellowship. They're getting to know one another. And so I've called it the art of dating. It's the time period uh, between their meeting and their marriage. And so dating, courtship, engagement, all of these things kind of fit into this box that I'm calling the art of dating part one and part two. And so we're going to begin in verse uh, nine of chapter one. Uh, before we do that, I just want to I guess share briefly, uh, since we're talking about dating, um, about my first date with my uh, my lovely wife. Um, Shelly and I met, I think it was 2004. Does that sound right? 2003, four. I know we were married in 04, so that's good, right? And I even know the date. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm clean, you know. Uh, but I, we, I think it was 2004, early in 2004 that we met, maybe at the end of 2003. And uh, so we, um, you know, had a chance to kind of talk and get to know each other a little bit. And um, I was very shy, and I am still today. But in particular, in that area, I was pretty shy. And so I think... It took me several weeks to get up the nerve uh, to ask my wife out on a date. And I think it was around my birthday time, wasn't it? Does that sound familiar to you? I think it was around my birthday time, which is around her birthday time, too. It's the, you know, about a week apart. And so um, I finally got the nerve to get up uh, to ask Shelly out. And uh, she, I think, gladly said yes. <laughs> I hope gladly said yes. I think it was a long time in coming. We had been uh, talking for quite a while. And so, you know, the first date, they say, is just so important, you know, at least that's what my friends were telling me and her friends were telling me, quizzing her, what are you going to wear? Well, you got you to gotta dress up, you got to wear this and that. And, you know, my buddies were just like, don't blow it, man. You know, <laughs> and I was like, OK. And uh, so what I decided to do was kind of the traditional date, you know, dinner and uh and a movie. Okay, sorry. I'm not very creative here. I went with a safe play. And so we went out to dinner first, and we went out to a restaurant called California Pizza Kitchen. Anyone ever been there? California Pizza Kitchen. Excellent place. Very good. Uh, they've got pizza, and it's uh, it's excellent. And so we go, and uh, things are going pretty well. I think our conversation is is going pretty smoothly. Uh, Shelly decides to get a pretty tasty pizza, and I get... I, I don't know what was up with me. I guess I was feeling really strange at that point, because there was a pasta dish at a pizza place, and it was like Indian, Thai, Indian, peanut pasta. And I was like, that sounds tasty. <laughs> and Shelly's probably thinking, uh, this date needs to end. <laughs> um, so I, I got this, this Thai dish, and I was thinking, oh, this sounds kind of tasty. And it was so blooming hot. It was so hot. And I'm such a wimp. I can't handle anything spicy. So I'm like, 
hmm, how's yours, you know? Ah, <laughs> drinking my water. And, and Shelly can tell that, you know, I'm not enjoying my food. And so she's very gracious. She's like, hey, you want a piece of my pizza? And so uh, from the beginning, she was a giver, and she shared her pizza with me. And so I thought, well... Okay, this went fairly smooth. You know, my mouth is still burning on the way to the on the way to the movie theater, but you know, it's going okay. And so it was one of those weekends. And I, if you've ever uh, just kind of had the urge to go to a movie, nothing in particular, you just want to see a movie that weekend. Um, and you go and you look at this at the at the at the movie options, and you're you're kind of looking through the newspaper, and you're like, no, stupid, boring. Love, nah, that's what I say, you know, <laughs> romance, nope. Uh, uh, and so I was looking through and I was like, what am I going to take her to see on our first date? And it was one of those weekends to where there was just nothing good. You know, you're like, man, I want to take this girl on a date and there's no good movies. And so if I recall, there was a couple, I kind of whittled it down to two movies. And the first movie that I whittled it down to was called The Lady Killers with Tom Hanks and someone else. Anyone ever seen The Lady Killers? You can admit it if you have, and you're smiling because you know what I'm about to say. Uh, and then the other movie was Jersey Girl. Anybody ever seen Jersey Girl? Okay, I've, I've not seen Jersey Girl, but I think it's probably more of a chick flick, right? Is that right? Kind of a romance, a little bit, kind of fun, you know? And so I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, well, Tom Hanks is a good actor, right? He's solid. He plays in a lot of good movies. Let's go see that. And, okay, seminary student. I didn't, even, I didn't look at the rating. Didn't even look. Thought Tom Hanks, it's going to be good. So we, and, and, and I think I don't know if we had had this conversation prior or not, or maybe even on the way to the movie theater. I come to find out that you know Shelley's like, you know, I just I don't watch rated R movies. I just don't. It's kind of you know where I, I just I just don't want to. I do it. I don't do it. I'm like, oh okay, that's cool. You know, integrity. She's spiritual. That's awesome. You know, it's really good. And so lo and behold, I, I look at the movie uh, the movie rating for Lady Killers, and guess what it is. Rated R. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> you're such an idiot. And uh, so we go, and it is filthy language. Is what I, all, all I recall is sitting there, looking at her, thinking, she's gonna walk out on this date. <laughs> uh, she's gonna walk out on our first date because this movie is so ridiculously bad. She made it through, and I, I think probably fairly profusely apologized for taking her uh, to that movie on the way home. So I was like, oh man, two strikes. Do I have two strikes on me? You know. I was like, I need to salvage this date, you know. And so we're going home, we're going back to our apartment. And it was kind of one of those areas in Dallas that there's a lot of things. It's easy to miss her, the turn off into our apartment. And so I um, accidentally, <laughs> accidentally, I drove by her place, accidentally, drove by her place. And uh, she said, oh, that was that. And I said, oh, okay. You want to get some ice cream? And uh, she very graciously at that point decided to, to go with me. And so we had ice cream. Long story short, went to TCBY or something and had a really good conversation, I think, right? You know, we had, some, had a heart-to-heart, first date. It was good. You're, you're with me, so it must have been okay, right? Um, all that to say is that my first date with my wife was, uh, it was good. I think she was very gracious with me, and I was very close to getting three strikes in your out. Um, what we're going to see this morning is this couple um, operate, they're dating, if you will. They're out in public, and what we're going to see is um, what I would call... St- Bear with me here. The seven P's, as in the letter P, the seven P's of biblical dating. Now, since you're, I'm a practical pastor, I can give you seven P's. Did you catch that? Wake up. Practical pastor. Come on, people. Wake up here. Seven P's. Here's, thank you. Um, we're going to do seven P's, and I'm pretty proud of these P's, actually, that I, I, I made the alliteration work. Seven P's of biblical dating. Um, if you were to ask the average Joe, maybe you've been in church all your life, does the Bible have anything to say about how two people, um, when they're attracted to one another, date, if you will, biblically? Yes, it does. In fact, we get about two chapters, a chapter and a half worth of this couple dating. And so what we're going to see, we're going to jump into it, the seven P's of biblical dating. The first P, um, if I, is, yeah, here it goes. First P is pleasant words. If you have a notebook, uh, the, the headings will be on the top if you want to take some notes. Pleasant words. And so what we're going to begin with is we're going to see this couple learn to speak to one another uh, with, with kindness and with gentleness. We're going to see this couple compliment one another. What we would call kind of the lovey-dovey, mushy kind of stuff that young couples do but also that old couples are supposed to do. So, pleasant words, verses 9 through 14. Let's go ahead and read. Uh, Solomon begins, he begins this discourse in verse 9. And he says this, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. 
Okay, stop right there. Guys, just a tip. Husbands, single guys, if you don't know what this means, it's probably not the wisest thing to begin your date saying, Honey, you're just like a horse. (laughs) Probably not wise. He says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Verse 10, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. And then the, the daughters of Jerusalem pipe in in verse 11. We will make for you, speaking of the, the girl, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. And so we begin um, with Solomon complimenting his date. He is speaking pleasantly to her. And what he is essentially saying is that you, my dear, on our date, are very attractive. You're very attractive to me, not only physically, but spiritually. You are... Um, very uh, unique. And so he uses this image. He calls her a mare among the stallions of Pharaoh's chariots. Okay, what in the world is this all about? Why is he calling her a horse? What he is saying is he is saying that you are like a mare, which is a female horse, out and about on a battlefield, if you will, um, with Pharaoh's chariots. Now guess uh, what Pharaoh's chariots were pulled with. They were pulled with stallions, and stallions are males. And so what he's saying, he's saying as if there were a ton of, of male horses out in the field, and there was one single female horse, they are all going to be very much attracted to that single horse, will they not be? He is, he is complimenting her here by saying, you are unique. You are so unique. I am so attracted to you, as if... You are the only woman on, on, on the planet Earth. That's how much I desire you. In fact, history tells us, pretty interestingly enough, that, uh, that Egypt's enemies, what they would sometimes do as a battle tactic, is they would let loose female horses to distract the stallions of Pharaoh's chariots. Interesting, right? So he's, he's using this image that's familiar with him. He is a horse lover, and he says, You are more desirable, desirable, my dear, um, than anything I can think of. And so he compliments her. He's speaking tenderly to her. Then she responds. And what we're going to see on their date is that it's very much back and forth. It's, it's really fluid. And so the woman responds, and she uses her own pleasant words, but what she chooses is images that she's familiar with. He's familiar with horses, and so he compliments her. She's familiar with other type things, and what she does is she compares him and her attraction to him, how desirable he is to her, to three sweet-smelling things. Notice what she says in reply in verse 12. While the king was on his couch, and we'll talk about what that couch, what that image is, well, but they're talking about their date. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Verse 13. My beloved is to me a sachet of, a sachet of myrrh, a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. And so she's using these images, these images of sweet smelling things, these things that uh, were supposed to make people attracted to you. Nard was like a, a perfume and it, it smelled very good. She calls him a sacket of myrrh that just the, 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 the scent goes up into her mouth, uh, her nostrils all the time. Verse 14, she calls him a cluster of henna blossoms, which was a white uh, flower, kind of a common flower that smelled very good. And so what she's doing then is she's responding to his pleasant words with her own pleasant words. And notice, I want us to notice a couple things here. Notice the words that they use for one another. In verse 9, he says, I compare you, my love. It's kind of like his pet name. You know what I mean? It's, it's his pet name for her, my love. I believe nine times in the book he calls her, my love, my love. In verse 12, uh, verse 13, she introduces her pet name for him, my beloved, my beloved. Something like 20 plus times she calls him this throughout the book. And so what we see is this is a... Uh, this is a couple, if you will, in modern times, sitting in a restaurant, and they're holding hands, and they're looking deep into one another's eyes, and they are complimenting one another. They're telling one another how they feel about one another, how desirable they are, how unique they are. And sometimes when we look at those couples, we're like, blah, gag me, you know? Some of us are like, oh, well, they'll learn. Oh, they're, they must be newlyweds, or oh, you know? But, but the point here is that that's how it's supposed to be. 
That's how it's supposed to be. And, and they use these pet, pet words. And so married couples, I want to encourage you, if you don't have a pet name for your spouse, I encourage you, uh, I encourage you to get one. Uh, mine for my wife, one of mine is Babe. I call her Babe. Another one is Sweetheart, I think, right? I call you that. Sweetheart. Right? Okay, shake your head at me. Okay. I think so. I don't want to make this up, sweetheart. Um, and so, you know, I enjoy using pet names with my wife. Uh, what, what are yours for mine? That one that I always forget. Um, the French one. No, she does. Uh, mon, mon, um, mon chéri, thank you. My wife knows French, and so she very, you know, appropriately, mon chéri, which means my, my love, my friend. Awesome that I have a wife who speaks to me in French. It's a good pet name. Uh, she has others. But the point is, is that they speak tenderly to one another. And so married couples, we'll start with you. I want to challenge you along these lines. Pleasant words. Um, it's easy for us to, again, kind of look at this and say, oh, well, they're new. Oh, they're newly married. Oh, they're just dating. It'll wear off, you know. At some point, you know, when you first uh, get married or, or first start dating, you're like, oh, honey, would you please fill up my cup? Oh, sweetie pie, just a little bit more. I love you so much. Thank you. And then after a while, it's like, boom, give me some more, you know. And, and, and our words oftentimes can decline. We are not as tender. We are not as sweet. We are not as pleasant. We don't talk like this any longer. And so married couples, I want to challenge you on this. How are you doing in the area of pleasant words? Do you encourage one another? Do you compliment one another? I would say, is there a culture of compliments in your marriage? Do you speak tenderly like this? Now, granted, the biblical standard here is like way up here. And most of us guys and women, we, we don't, we don't meet this. You know, we're not like, oh, you're such, you're a mare among the Pharaoh's chariots and you're like Hannah Block. You know, we, we're not that poetic. We're just not that good. You know, this is like a huge standard. But it's meant to be mimicked nonetheless. Single folks, I think how this applies to you is that as you begin to date and date that one person, uh, you are attracted to them physically, you are attracted to them in a spiritual level. I think what this means is that when you begin this dating period, it means that you begin to learn to speak to one another with kind of, kindness. It's the time period where you begin to um, open yourself up in a healthy way. You begin to compliment, and you, you, you have this culture. You begin to learn to speak kindly and with tenderness and with complimenting that other person. Um, and so the first P of biblical dating, pleasant words. Moving right along, verses 15 through 16, we see not only pleasant words, marks biblical dating, but physical attraction. We saw this last week. Verses 15 and 16, the guy responds, and he says this in verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are are does or your eyes are like does and so what we're going to see is that last week there was an initial physical attraction and there continues to be a physical attraction between this couple he continues on with his pleasant words and he calls her beautiful not only does he call her beautiful but he calls her beautiful twice behold you are beautiful my love you are beautiful and he affirms that she is altogether lovely and that she is beautiful in her and his eyes. But not only does, not only does he comment on her physical looks, beauty, but he comments on her character. Notice the image that he uses there. He says, your eyes are doves. Now what does he mean? You know what I mean? That her eyes look like birds? What is he trying to say there? Well, in that culture, doves uh, were symbolic of purity. Uh, doves were symbolic of serenity and, and tranquility. And what I, I believe he's doing here is he's saying, you are physically beautiful, and I'm still attracted to you. But I'm still attracted to you spiritually. Uh, one rabbi commented on this verse saying that, uh, that the windows, uh, that the eyes were the window to the, to the girl's soul. And so the rabbi commented that Solomon was saying she was physically beautiful and she was, her character was godly and pure. And so we see this, this tandem of physical attraction and spiritual attraction. And so he compliments her on her beauty. And then she responds back and forth in verse 16. Behold, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. And so he says, you're beautiful. And she responds back with the same words, you are beautiful. Oftentimes, we don't call guys beautiful, right? In our culture, we say they are what? 
handsome, good-looking, I don't know, other adjectives. But she uses the same word that he used for her. You're beautiful. But not only is she still physically attracted to this guy, but she is attracted to him spiritually. Notice what she calls him at the very end. She says, truly, truly delightful. The New American Standard says, truly pleasant. The NIV translates this Hebrew word, charming. And so she is commenting not only on his looks, but on his character. And so singles, what this means is that as you continue to date, you're getting to know that person, there should still be physical attraction. It's a good thing. That's how God made it to be. And so that element is most certainly there. But what we should not overlook, which we most often overlook, is the character element. The character element. And what we find out, remember back when they uh, initially were attracted to one another. What was Solomon attracted to? What did we find out about this woman's character? She was submissive to authority, right, because her brothers made her work. She was submissive to authority, and she was a servant. What did we find out about his character? It was like pure wine, right? Wine poured out. It was pure. His character was becoming more and more godly. And so they initially, they were spiritually attracted to one another. And I think what we see here is that as they continue to get to know one another... They've, that's confirmed. They still think that way. They, they're finding out that, yes, Solomon is the godly man that I thought he was. Yes, this woman was, is the godly woman that I think she is. And so single people, as you have more dates, essentially what you're going to find out is you have an in, initial impression of this guy or this girl. You think he's godly. You think she loves Jesus. You think she's a servant. But as you get to know them more, you'll find out whether that impression is true or whether it's false. And I encourage you, if you continue along and you find out, well, this guy isn't quite the servant that I thought he was. This guy is not quite as gentle as I thought he was. This girl doesn't care quite as much about others as I thought. I encourage you seriously to consider that relationship and where it's going. And so what we've seen so far is a couple Ps. There's physical attraction, uh, there's pleasant words, and there's physical attraction, right? Moving right along, verse 16, not only do we see those two things, but we see propriety. There is propriety. In verse 16, the woman continues to speak, and what she says is she speaks of the setting. She speaks of the setting of their date. And so where are they? Where are they dating? Where is this uh, interaction going on? Look with me. At the tail end of verse 16, she says this, Our couch is green. The second time she has used the word couch. Earlier on, she says, while the king was on his couch. It's, it's where you sit. Well, where is this? She says, our couch is green. First clue, the beams of our house are cedar, and the rafters are pine. So where are they? They're on a date, and where are they? What do the clues lead us to? Well, I think the clues lead us to they are outside. They are dating outside. They, I believe they are in a vineyard-type place. And what she says is she's looking at the green grass in which they're sitting and having this lovely conversation. And she says, our couch is green. It's green. And she says, the trees, the cedar trees and the pines above us, those are the beams of our household. And so the point that I want us to see is that there is propriety in their dating. They choose to spend time with one another in public. They choose to spend time with one another where they can protect themselves from situations of compromise. You see that? We see propriety in dating. And so going back to when Shelly and I dated, um, it was kind of a whirlwind. I think we met and dated and got married Almost in a span of a year, isn't that right? Maybe a little bit less. And so our relationship went really quick. And uh, the time that I remember where we, I think, fell in love and we got to know one another and really got to know the ins and outs, it was summertime. And so I was in school and she was in school and we were both working. Uh, but we had time just to spend dating, if you will. And while we certainly uh, weren't outside all of the time, the fondest memories that I have of, of being intentional about this is saying, okay, we can take a walk. We, we would take walks in the evenings, and it was a beautiful uh, summer nights in Texas, and we would look at the stars, and we would be in public. When we wanted to have conversations in the evening, we would stand on her balcony out in public. Um, we would uh, go swimming uh, in her pool. We would go exercise. We would play tennis, all of those things. Uh, now, granted, we spent, a, we, we spent time in st- inside. We studied and all of those things. But the point is, is that there's pr- there should be propriety in dating. You should, uh, if you can, do it in a, in a public place uh, to where you can protect yourself. And so, single people, I want to ask you, 
is your dating marked with propriety? Or are you putting yourselves in situations to where you could possibly compromise your position in a physical way? And my advice to you is, as I've said before, do what you can. Spend time outside. Spend time in public. And if you have to be inside, because Illinois is not Texas and it's cold here (laughs) quite a bit more than it is in Texas, um, be inside where people are. If you're in your boyfriend's home, if you're in your girlfriend's home, make sure that their parents are there. Make sure that the kids are there. Make sure that you're not alone because biblical dating between a godly young man and a godly young woman not only involves pleasant words, they complement one another, not only is there physical and spiritual attraction, but there is propriety in the setting of the date. So we've seen three Ps. Moving right along to P number four, not only is there pleasant words, physical attraction, propriety, there is what I would call perception. Perception. And I'll explain what I mean by this in a little bit. Moving into, into chapter two, we see the woman continues to speak here and she ends her little soliloquy, if you will, in verse one. And what she does is she ends it She ends it by downplaying her physical looks. If you remember from uh, last week, what, what did she say about herself? She said, don't stare at me because my skin is what? It's dark. I'm sunburned. Don't stare at me. My, my, my brothers were angry at me. They made me work, unlike many of the women in that day who valued a very white complexion. She was dark. And so we see that while she considers herself beautiful, she, you know, she downplays her looks. And she continues to do that here. She says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. She says, I am the Rose of Sharon. I am the Rose of Sharon, which is a, a, a region in Israel, a fertile kind of a valley region. I am, a, I am a Rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now what she's saying here is that she is like a common flower, like a common everyday flower that you might find in this valley area called Sharon. Um, she's saying, I'm, I'm pleasant, I'm pretty, I'm attractive, but I'm common. Just a common flower. The translation that most of us have says, I'm a rose of Sharon. That Hebrew word is really hard to translate. We, you don't exactly know what it is, what it means. But most likely, it's, it's something like a lily. Rose of Sharon, lily of the valley. She's, she's not talking about, like in our day, a rose is like a really nice flower, you know. She, that's not what she's saying. She's saying, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm attractive, but I'm kind of common. And so notice then, this is her, the perception that she has of herself, right? Notice then how Solomon responds to her. Are you ready? Verse 2. He says this, As a lily among brambles. Any other translations you have sitting out there? What does it say? What? Thorns. Okay, yeah, that's a good translation as well. As a lily among brambles, or as a lily among thorns, so is my love among the young women. Isn't that great? What is he doing there? He is helping her perception. He is revealing his perception of her. She says, I'm a common flower. I'm just, I'm pretty, I'm attractive, but I'm just a common everyday flower. And then what he says is, you may be a lily, that you are a lily and every other woman is a thorn. You see that? He is, in, he is giving her the compliment of compliments. He's saying, you, that, you may think that of yourself, but baby, baby, I'm sure he used, that's the Hebrew, baby. He says, baby, all the other women, they're like prickly thorns. They're ugly compared to you. And so he has this perception of her that she is everything that he could ever want. She responds then quickly and back and forth. She responds and she says something very similar. She says, you are better than any other man. Verse 3, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest. Catch the image. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, continuing on this image of Solomon as an apple tree, with great delight, I sat in his shade. I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste and so how does she respond he says you are unlike any other woman that I have ever met you may not think so but you are and then she responds by complimenting him and saying you are as unique and valuable and precious as an apple tree in the midst of a forest 
As far as I know, you don't find apple trees in the midst of, of, of a forest. An apple tree is much more desirable, desirable than just a common forest tree. And so she responds. And the point that I want us to get here, very simply this, is that their perception of one another as they get to know one another is simply this. They are not settling. That's the point here. They are not settling. She looks at him and she says, man, just like an apple tree among the trees of forest, you stand out. You are above the rest. He says, you are uh, like a beautiful flower with thorns all around. You are that much better than any any other woman. And so in short, they're not settling. And so... Uh, this is a really good application. Uh, Shelley has spent many hours, and I have spent many hours, but not as much, talking to uh, students. Shelley and I both did youth ministry before we came here. And so um, for teenagers and young adults, this is a big deal. You know, dating is a big deal. And she would talk with young women. And one young woman in, one woman in particular comes to mind that Shelley and I both know. And uh, she started dating this guy in high school. You know who I'm talking about. And uh, we just got a Facebook update the other day um, that she wanted our address. And she had been continuing, continued to date the same guy from high school all the way through college. And we're thinking, wedding bells, you know. We're like, wedding bells here. She's a senior. She's graduating. She's going to marry this guy, which is, would be fine. But this young lady in particular, as far as what I remember from Shelley's conversations, she was just never really, how do you put it? She was settling. She was like, well, I like this guy, and he's nice, and he's sweet. And she would say, yeah, but is he, is he the spiritual leader that you want? Is he, is he kind? Is he godly? Does he love Jesus? Well, not like, not like I'd like, but I can make him that. And if you're a woman or a guy, and you've been there, you, you have been in a relationship, and you, and you feel like you're settling, then you know what I'm talking about. And numerous conversations that Shelley has had, and we pray, and we're like, God, this is not right break him up. She's settling. She's settling. She's not married the guy yet. But we see this a lot, don't we? We see this a lot, in particular with young women, I think, is my humble opinion, is that they tend to settle. They're like, well, he's cute, and he goes to church on occasion, and he treats me well, but he's not the spiritual leader that I'm looking for. And so, singles, here's my word to you. Don't ever settle. Don't ever settle. Don't ever go into a relationship that is heading on a trajectory towards marriage to where you will end up one day in that relationship saying, man, I wish I had better. Now, no one's perfect. You you can't expect perfection. But if you don't feel about that person like she feels about Solomon, that he is an apple tree among trees of the forest, and if you don't feel like he feels about this young woman, that she's a rose of Sharon, and every other female, every other woman is like a bramble, then maybe you really need to reconsider that relationship. Don't ever settle. Don't ever settle. Solomon and his bride-to-be, is not, they're not settling. So we've seen four Ps. Pleasant words, physical attraction, propriety in their dating relationships, their perception of one another. Number five in verse four, we see that especially from the male end of things, there is public honor. There is public honor. Verse 4. This is what he says. Actually, she speaks about him. And she says this in in verse 4. He brought me to his banqueting house. Banqueting table, possibly, your translation says. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. And so what she's talking about here, she's using these images, and we're like, what is she talking about? (laughs) You know what I mean? Um... Banqueting hall, banner, what's this, what's this all about? She is talking about the way that he is treating her in public. She is talking about, I believe, the way that he is interacting with her on their date. Remember, they are outside. I think they are, in a little bit I'll tell you why, I think they're, they're at a vineyard outside. And, and it's in a public place. And what she says is, he treats me in an honorable way in public so that when everyone looks, they know that he loves me. Notice, he brought me to his banqueting house. Literally, in Hebrew, it's the house of wine. 
the house of wine. It's one of those, it's one of those phrases that it's really hard to exactly translate. There are a lot of different things it could be. There are a lot of similarities. But literally, it's the house of wine. And so what I think this means is it could refer oftentimes in Hebrew to two things. It could re- refer to like a restaurant or like a drinking hall, the, the place where you would drink wine. Or it could refer to the place where wine was grown, which was the vineyard. That's what I think she's talking about here. I think she's talking about this, this public place, this vineyard that they're at. And he says, you've brought me to this place, Solomon, and this is how you treat me. His banner over me was love. Now, this is a military term. The idea of a banner is a military term. Um, you, you probably have seen this on movies, kind of medieval movie kind of thing before. But what they would do is when you were in the midst of battle, of course the battle is here and there and everywhere, but there would be two sides, kind of two camps. And what these camps would do is they would have these big banners, just like a, a banner, you know, sticks and like a, you know, some kind of banner kind of thing. And what, it would, it, what, what would happen is that there would be the name or the symbol of your army up above. And so the point is, is that she likens his treatment of her in public to this banner that is over her. A banner was something that was easily seen. That's the point here. You could see it from wherever you were fighting. You saw the banner and you knew. It was easily identifiable. And so what she's saying is, his love for me in public is like a banner. Everyone can see it. Everyone knows that when we are in public, they know that I am his woman because why? Because what? What was his banner? Was it, was it this? I've got my arm over her. She's my girl. You know, like I, I go to the mall, and I, I'm sure I used to do this as, as a teenager, but I'm like, you know, you know, that's how you know, like in the teenage realm, or even in some of the young adult realm, that's, that's how you know that they're together. You know, they're hanging out, and they're holding hands, and that kind of thing, which is fine. You know what I mean? Um, but what she says is the way, that, the way that people know that I'm his girl is that he treats me in public like I'm a queen. That's what he's saying. He treats me in public like I am royalty. He loves me. Again, in high school, at least in my high school, a couple ways that you would know if people were together, um, the girl would wear the guy's letter jacket. Does that happen here at all? Okay, no? Okay, in Texas, hey, we're weird. That's how it happens. Also, if you were a senior and you were dating someone, you would give that senior ring to the young lady and she would put it where? On a necklace, thank you. One person knows. On a necklace. And so that would, there would be an outward symbol that you were together. What Solomon is saying here, or what she is saying, excuse me, is he pulls my chair out for me when we were in public. What he's saying is he opens the door to buildings for me when we are in public. What she is saying is when it's cold outside, he pulls the car up to the target, the, you know, target door and lets me go out, and then he goes and parks the car. You get, you get my drift, guys in particular? That's what he's saying. That's what she's saying, is that he demonstrably loves her in public. And that's how people know. That's how people know that she is his. And so, guys, I want to ask you, when you are in public, is your banner over your wife? Is your banner over your dating partner? Is it love? Pure, holy love. Couples, I want to ask you this. When you go outside of the boundaries of the city limits of Cisna Park, wherever you may be traveling, to where people don't know you, you need to ask this question. Would they know that we have a healthy relationship? Would they know that we love one another just by looking at us? Just by looking at the way that I treat her? Just by looking at my tone of voice with him? Just by looking how we walk together? Would they know that you love one another? That is what we see. Public honor, pleasant words, physical attraction, propriety, perception, public honor, Sixth, sixthly, is that a word? Sixth, number six is passion. Passion. Five, five and six. And so what we're going to see here is that things get a little steamy in verses five and six. We're going to see that there is passion, that there is physical passion in this relationship. Verses five and six. <laughs> Let's read it together. This, this is what she says. He's brought me into his banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. And then she says this, verses 5 and 6. Sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. 
let his, uh, the New American Standard, I think, is a preferable tr- uh, translation. Uh, ESV says, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Other translations uh, see it as a request, and I think that's more likely. It's a request. Let his left hand be under my head, and let his right hand or his right arm embrace me. Okay, <laughs> what in the world is she talking about? I mean, they're on a date. Does she want dessert, raisins, and apples? Like, what's going on? You know what I mean? Was the main course not sufficient enough? <laughs> no, she's using some uh, pretty, um, pretty erotic images here, and we're going to see exactly what's going on. So the point is this. Notice how she has been treated up to this point, right? Um, he has praised her. He has spoken tenderly to her. He has treated her like a queen in public. He has said, you are above, uh, head and shoulders above every other woman. He's called her beautiful, right? And so what then is the response of a godly young woman to this kind of a loving, godly man? There is sexual attraction. There is passion. Sustain me with raisin cakes. If you were a Jew or a Hebrew... Um, you would probably laugh out loud at that verse and you would say, man, did she say that? Did she really say that? Yeah, she said that. Raisin cakes and apples um, in that day were fruits or, or in, the, in the case of a cake, was a cake kind of thing with raisins that were thought to be aphrodisiacs. And so if you were to say, give me a raisin cake, give me an apple, what you're saying is, I am very attracted to you physically. I'm attracted to you sexually. I, I, I want these things. I'm sick with love. And then she asks this request. It's a request. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. This is a, a, a position that she is requesting that is a position of uh, the most intimate marital positions. You see what she is requesting. And what I want us to see is that Premarital passion in a healthy, godly dating relationship that is progressing towards marriage is a healthy thing. It's healthy. It's not wrong. It's not, it's not ungodly for them to feel this way. But what we see is that it's natural. It's God-given. It's not supposed to be suppressed. It's not supposed to be called dirty. Did you know up until the third century that a majority of the church fathers, uh, you know, early Christians up to the third century, thought that the original sin... Adam and Eve, the original sin was what? Sex. That's what they thought. Having pre, having passion, physical passion, that's what they thought. That's not right. That's not biblical. So it's not supposed to be suppressed. It's not supposed to be called dirty. But they're not supposed to be blindly followed either. Just because you have those passions doesn't mean that you execute them at that time. They're, they're not supposed to be suppressed, called dirty, nor blindly followed they're supposed to be postponed. They're to be postponed. And this is exactly what we're going to see this couple do. They have extreme premarital passion for one another. But they say, now's not the time. Now is not the time. Wait. And so we see finally in verse 7, purity. The last of our seven Ps is purity. We have seen this couple speak kindly to one another. They have physical attraction. They have spiritual attraction. They exercise uh, propriety in their dating. They perceive one another to be the best out there. He honors her in public. And then so she is passionate for him. And so then, don't look ahead at verse 7. What, what we see then is the biblical response to premarital passion. What are we supposed to do with it? We're supposed to postpone it. What if God were to say, Go after it, my children. Ah, uh, that would, <laughs> we would have a problem with that, wouldn't we? We'd be like, oh, time to edit that verse. No. Or he doesn't say, you wicked, vile lady, how dare you feel that way? He doesn't say that either, does he? Notice what he says. Solomon says this in verse 7. Uh, commentaries disagree. Some people think that she says this. Some people think that he says it. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter, but I think, I think he responds here. And I think what he says is, was verse 7. I adjure you, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Remember the daughters of Jerusalem, the women of Jerusalem? I adjure you, O daughters of, of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. So he's kind of taking an oath. He's encouraging them by looking at the gazelles or the does of the field. And this is the point. 
that you do not stir up, don't you, don't stir up or awaken love. And oftentimes this word love here has physical connotations in this book in particular. That you do not stir up or awaken love, these kind of passionate feelings, when? Until it pleases. That is until it's the right time. And so he uses this image of, of a gazelle or a doe. Um, hunters out there. How many of you deer hunters? Come on, guys. You've got some of you deer hunters. Okay. Um, I've been a few times. I used to go a lot when I was young. I don't go very much anymore. But the one thing that I remember about deer hunting is that when you were going to kill a deer, at least we would in Texas, we'd sit still uh, either in the grass or we'd have a blind. And my dad always stressed to me, be quiet. <laughs> don't move. Be still, because they're jumpy and they're tender and they'll flee just like that. And so how then do you approach a doe of the field or a hind? Well, just at, at just the right moment, at just the right moment, it takes patience for just the right moment. And I think that's the image that Solomon is using here. At, you have to be patient at just the right moment until it pleases. Essentially, he's saying, young lady, this is good. I'm glad you feel this way. There's nothing wrong with it. It's supposed to be postponed. Don't arouse it until it's time, i.e., in the context of covenant marriage. And so single men, we're going to finish up with a couple applications here. Single men in particular, I think if this is Solomon speaking to us, and I believe that it is, what we see here is that it is your job to protect the purity of that relationship. It falls upon you. And so it makes me so very angry, and I've talked with several guys, um, you know, growing up through the years. Guys tend to be predators. Indeed. Guys can be predators in this area. But what the biblical concept is, is that you are not a predator, you're a protector. That's what you are. You are to be a protector of the purity of that relationship. You shouldn't, you should not be the one pushing the limits physically. And she have to say, Get off me, you jerk. <laughs> Stop doing that. It shouldn't be that way. You should be the one saying, okay, I need to leave. This is getting too heavy. This is getting too hot. Okay, let's, let's take a break. You need to be the one to do that. And guys, I'll be very frank with you. I'll be very frank in a loving way, hopefully. If you're not mature enough to do this, if you're not mature enough to be a godly man and not be a predator and be a protector, then you shouldn't be dating. Sorry, the Bible says it. You shouldn't be dating. You're not mature enough to date. So don't do it. Don't do it. Be a protector, not a predator. When Shell and I were engaged, as many of you, if you remember back to that time period, you were engaged, um, we were committed to this. We were committed to being pure. And was it hard? You bet it was hard. Were there nights uh, to where um, we stood out on her, on her uh, doorstep outside and I said, I gotta go. This is this is too much for me. I, but we can't handle this. Yeah, you bet. It's hard, and it's supposed to be that way because it's supposed to be good when you get married. By God's grace, God helped me to do that. Was I perfect? No. Did God help us to do that? Yes, He did. Purity in the relationship. Married men. I want to address you now. Obviously, um, you're married, and so this is a uh, intimacy with your wife is a good thing. It's a really good thing. It's how it should happen. But I want to encourage you. I think the principle still applies to you that it's your job to protect the the physical purity of your marriage. What I mean by that is you need to protect yourself and you need to protect your wife. I need to protect myself from lustful thoughts, from dwelling on things that I shouldn't dwell on, from pornography, from uh, putting myself in a, a potential compromising situation with another woman. It's my responsibility to protect myself sexually, pure, with purity in my relationship. And guys, it's your responsibility, I believe, to protect your wife. And here's how you do that. I want to share a quote with you from Tommy Nelson. A lot of his stuff uh, I've benefited from as I've studied the Song of Solomon. He says this about adultery. Tommy Nelson says this about adultery. He says, adultery is not a moral sin. And then he explains that. It's not a moral sin. And he, he says, it's, 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 adultery is not caused by lust. I'll continue the quote. It comes from a vacuum in the home of tenderness. Let that sink in. Adultery comes 
It's a vacuum in the home of tenderness. And what he means by that is that, guys, if you are not tender to your wife, if you're not respectful, if you're not loving, if you're not gentle, if you don't put her before you as Christ did the church, if you are not this, you are creating a vacuum of intimacy and of love and of tenderness in that home that your wife will seek elsewhere. She'll seek it elsewhere. If she doesn't get it from you, she's going to get it from someone else. And so it's your responsibility not only to protect yourself, to be pure, but to, I guess secondarily, um, protect your wife by being tender and loving and kind. She, you should treat her in such a way that she would never, ever, even in the deepest, darkest, unspoken thoughts in her mind, you should treat her in such a way that she never, ever considers entertaining the thought of another man because you love her so well. This is what I want us to do. We're going to go. We're going to sing a, a closing song. There's homework in the back. I hope you did the homework last week. Shelly and I did it um, in our typical fashion. She probably did it the day, Sunday afternoon or Monday. I waited till last night. <laughs> I put things off, but I did it, and it was beneficial. Um, so I encourage you to do that. There's homework in the back for singles and married. Single couples, uh, excuse me, singles. It pertains more, more to you. Um, look at these seven P's and say, how are we doing? Maybe you are, um, sorry, couples do that who are dating. Singles who are not dating, bear with me. You can also do that too. Look through and say, maybe I'm not in a relationship now, but if I would be, where would be my weak spots? Married couples, here's the big picture. You should continue to date your spouse. Dating doesn't stop, shouldn't stop. These seven Ps shouldn't stop just because you have a ring on your finger and you're married. And so we should continue to date our spouses. And so married couples, this week, look through these seven Ps. Some apply more to you than others, obviously. But look at those and say, how are we doing? Am I still dating my spouse? Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that it's so practical. Uh, Father, we're grateful that you speak into the most intimate areas of our life. Father, the areas of our life that mean so much to us, that have so much potential to impact us for good and for bad. God, so much love and joy and peace comes from relationships and so much hurt as well. And so, Father, we're so grateful that you've given us clear instructions. Father, I pray for those of us in here who have done this well. I pray that we would not be proud or haughty, that we would see your grace at work in our lives. And I pray for those of us who have, are not perfect, who have not done this like we want to do. Father, we are reminded that our great bridegroom, our great Solomon, is Jesus Christ, and that he is the one who loves us perfectly, and he encourages us and compliments us and gives himself for us, and he pays for the penalty of our sins, for all of our sins. In this area and every other area, he is our bridegroom who has given himself for us, and he has made us white as snow. And so, Father, I pray for those of us who are uncomfortable and we're hurting. Uh, Father, I pray that we would rejoice that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins and makes us new. He makes us new creatures, and that is available to all of us now. So I ask as we sing that our hearts would be focused upon you, that we would sing with joy and with healing because of Jesus Christ.